all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, today, uh, I've been waiting uh, to see what the GDP was for 2023. You know, there's a lot of hype going around <clears throat> that says, uh, oh, we're in a soft landing. So this show is kind of like, let's revisit the soft landing a little bit here. Now, we don't have the initial figures for GDP yet for the fourth quarter and therefore for the year, but uh, we got some forecasts uh, by the Fed and others of what 2023 will be, and uh, it's important to determine whether it is a soft landing or not. <clears throat> now, soft landing means that uh, inflation is coming down. And it means that uh, the economy is not coming down. In other words, it's continuing to grow. GDP is still in a healthy range. That's a uh, soft landing. Soft landing depends on uh, the two variables, inflation and uh, economic growth. Now, economic growth is usually reported in GDP you know, uh, as a real growth. Real growth means adjusted for inflation. You know, GDP simply defined is all the goods and services produced and sold in the economy in a given year. Right, produced and sold in a given year or quarter. <clears throat> and the U.S. likes to report quarterly, annually, Annualized. What does annualized mean? It means that you take the actual change from quarter to quarter, second quarter, third quarter, whatever, and you get a number, and you basically multiply it by four. Four quarters in the year with some adjustment for seasonality. Okay, that's how you get an annualized number, and the number always comes out larger, you know? It's more impressive. Oh, we didn't grow by point. 0.1 in the quarter, we, we grew by uh, 3.5 or 3.2, whatever. Makes it look better. Now, Europe and all the other countries in the world report quarter to quarter. They don't annualize it. It's not until you get through the year that you get the true annual number for their GDP. Well, that's just the sort of way the U.S. does it. You know, the U.S. has a habit of uh, uh, trying to cherry pick and uh, put in the media the best numbers that they can. I mean, it's like unemployment number. You know, you hear this 3.9% unemployment number. Well, that's only for full-time workers. You know, that doesn't include part-time temp, people dropped out of the labor force, you know, discouraged workers, people they can't find, missing workers, whatever. And even for the full-time workers, it's only workers who were full-time, who are out of work now, and have looked for a job in the last four weeks. If you've uh, not looked for a job in the last four weeks, you're on unemployment benefits or whatever, and you're just sort of skating, uh, you're not considered unemployed for the calculation. So there's a lot wrong with the way the U.S. calculates uh, jobs. And as I talked about last week, there's a lot wrong the way with how the U.S. calculates inflation. You know, there are three indexes, price indexes, that the U.S. uses to calculate inflation. 
uh, and they are estimates, because all statistics are estimates, they're not actual data, they're estimates. In other words, you take the raw data and you do a statistical manipulation of that data, uh, and that gives you a statistic. All these are statistics, manipulation on the real raw data. And uh, of the three indexes, we've got the Consumer Price Index, CPI. We've got the PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditure, PCE Index. And we've got the GDP Deflator Index. Now, the first index, CPI, is calculated by the Labor Department, Bureau of Labor Statistics. They're the guys who do your uh, uh, employment and unemployment data as well. And then we've got the PCE, which is the Fed's estimate. You know, you hear about the Fed, oh, we're targeting 2%. Well, it's not 2% CPI, it's 2% PCE. And the problem with the PCE is that it's heavy, heavy, more heavily weighted on goods rather than services. So with goods prices having come down, uh, that PCE number is going to be less than the CPI number. CPI number is uh, the roughly 450 or so items, goods or services that households tend to buy. In other words, real consumer impact, household impact. <clears throat> Whereas PCE is, you know, all the millions of, of uh, well, I don't know exactly how many, but it's more than 450, right? The one that index that calculates all the goods and services in the economy is the GDP deflator. And that comes in even lower than the PCE, right? If you look at these three right now as of the third quarter, Third quarter 22, third quarter 23, you know, you got CPI at about uh, 4%, goods and services, all items. You got PCE about 3.2, 3.4, I think, I forget. And then you've got the deflator at 2% or less, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, with the, the index number it's calculated on, GDP deflator, uh, third quarter, third quarter is uh, 1.20 and hasn't risen to 1.122.7. So 2.7 change uh, over 12 months on an index of 120, uh, you know, a little over 2%, barely 2%. Now it's important when we're talking about soft landing to understand that the biggest factor that boosts GDP makes it look good, it's in soft landing, right? GDP economy is growing, is the use of the GDP deflator, the lowest lowball of the three indexes, barely growing at 2%. Yeah. Well, how did they come up with 2%? You know, there's millions literally millions of goods and services offered in the U.S. economy. Well, then do they go out and sample a million or five million or what? No, it's all assumptions. It's all estimation. Unlike the CPI, 
you know, where the government actually goes out and looks at those goods. There's problems in the way they look at the goods and estimate them. You know, and I talked about that a little bit next week. Maybe it's worth worthwhile kind of going over. What are the problems of CPI? Okay, we'll, we'll do that again. But uh, CPI is at four for all goods and services. And it's creeping up. Yeah. Services are stuck for nine months now between five and six percent. And services are most of the economy. Most of what we buy are services, not goods. Goods prices have come down. Yeah. Goods prices are, you know, in a recession. The goods sector, manufacturing, construction is in a recession. Re re recession. You know, I just saw a statistic that uh, uh, housing sales, new housing sales are the lowest in 28 years. I mean, that sector, residential housing, you know, is flat on its back. It's in depression, you might even say. Manufacturing has been contracting for nine months now. Goods. Okay. So the good sector, inflation has been shaken out of the good sector. Whether you say it's because of uh, uh, Fed rate hikes or whether it's because of the global economy slowing down, you know, goods are exported. So if the global economy is slowing down, there's less demand for U.S. exports. Therefore, there's less production of U.S. exports. And I think the biggest factor of U.S. category, U.S. exports, it's, it's either, it's either uh, processed energy, i.e. chemicals, right? uh, or it's food, one or the other. Right? Those are the two big, and then I think uh, military equipment's right up there too. <clears throat> so, you know, what we've got here is slowing goods prices, but services prices haven't slowed very much. A few areas they have, but, you know, in other areas, they're still on a tear. Rents is still on a tear. Rent over half of the inflation CPI last month. No, that's just straight price gouging going on by landlords. Other areas of services are also on a tear. Right. Have you had your auto repaired lately? Hmm? Well, those prices are rising last year at a rate of over 20%. Uh, how about your insurances? Have you noticed them being hiked and going through the roof? You betcha. Yeah, all kinds of insurances, auto insurance, home insurance, medical insurance, whatever. Right. And now we've got uh, energy prices creeping back up. Now, those are goods prices, gasoline and so forth. That's that's the goods sector. So the goods sector that was flattened, you know, is now coming back to life, you might say. Goods prices are rising to non-durables. See, goods are, are uh, divided into durables, things that last, you know, more than a year, and non-durables, stuff you consume. You know, like food you consume, gasoline you consume, things that you buy, you consume it when you buy it entertainment, right? Okay, so uh, that's creeping back up. Why? Oh, look at the Middle East. You know, that's only begun. Red Sea, right? Uh, the war in Hamas, Israel's expanding, <clears throat> expanding to other areas as well. 
looks like uh, you know Iran may be getting a little bit more aggressive as uh, the U.S. and U.K. Uh, prepare to uh, maybe uh, take on Iran. And you see this in, in the outlying uh, areas preparation uh, going on in some of the uh, some of the places in Iraq, <clears throat> in pa Pakistan, and so forth, right? That's all going on now. Uh, so uh, Iran is is responding to this. So things are, you know, in the Middle East, they're getting a little dicier by the day. And of course, what? That's the key area uh, for shipment of oil and other containerized goods. You know, Red Sea, 30% of all container ships in the world go through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Well, that's blocked. Now they got to go around Africa, Horn of Africa there. Uh, and that uh, adds uh, to their transport costs per container. I think containers are up, uh, you know, container prices, the, the price per container with insurance is almost doubled. So uh, that's all going to be passed on into goods prices, not just oil ships, you know, oil tankers, but uh, other container ships of other kinds of goods as well. So those prices are creeping back up and they're going to continue creeping back up. And we saw that in the last month's CPI. I mean, uh, excuse me, PCE, CPI, in everything, right? We've seen those prices beginning to creep back up. Uh so inflation is not dead, you know? Uh, but the point is, getting back to GDP and inflation, the point is that uh, actual real GDP that is the basis for half of the argument of soft landing, and though GDP is still growing, is determined mostly and first and foremost by what inflation index you use and what that inflation rate is. Remember, we got the three indexes. We got CPI, which is a real index, what households experience. We got PCE, heavy, heavy on goods, which the Fed uses. And then we've got the Commerce Department's GDP deflator, which is just a big, you know, throw it up against the wall and Whatever happens, whatever sticks is your inflation rate. It's supposed to be all the millions of goods and services. No one estimates that. No one, you know, there's no raw data for that. You know, maybe we'll do a show on the methodologies uh, in the GDP deflator uh, and why it comes in at 2% or less while the CPI is more than double that. Now, think about that. If you use the CPI to adjust for inflation, There'd be no GDP growth. You know, if GDP deflator is 2% or less, and that gives you your 2% GDP growth, right? And if the CPI is twice 2%, well, that wipes out all the rest of the real GDP growth. And what is that growth in 23? Well, we saw the growth uh, about 2%, 2.1, 2 2.2, 2 whatever, in the first half of last year, GDP growth. And then we got this big boost, aberration, outlier, 
third quarter last year, 4.9%. Well, that, as I pointed out, was all inventory virtually, all inventory adjustment and a few other things, but mostly inventory. Businesses investing, piling up their inventory of goods in expectation that there'd be a big spending boom by households in the fourth quarter. Well, the big spending boom really didn't happen. Well, wait a minute, you might say, you know, they're reporting retail sales, you know, 5%, 5.7% retail sales in the fourth quarter. Well, isn't that a boom? Well, not if most of it is inflation prices because they don't adjust retail sales, which is the biggest category in consumer spending. They don't adjust it for inflation. It's nominal prices. So if you got a 5% retail sales increase in the fourth quarter and you've got you know, 4 to 5% or more GDP, officially, you know, well, then there's no re real re retail sales consumption growth, is there? No. It, it, it's all prices. It's not real volume increase. And GDP measures real volume adjusted for inflation. So if you use a real low ball price index like the deflator, you're going to get more of a real GDP growth than if you use the CPI. If you use the CPI to adjust inflation for the economy for GDP, there'd be no growth. We'd be flat, stagnant in the fourth quarter. And estimates for the whole year, fourth quarter is going to come way down from the third quarter. Remember third quarter, 4.9? Fourth quarter is going to come way down. We're going to be somewhere in the forecast side between one and one and a half percent real GDP growth in the fourth quarter. We're falling from 4.9 4 to well less than two from the third quarter to the fourth quarter. Again, supporting my, my point that it was an aberration in the third quarter pumped up by mostly uh, inventory investment. So it's really flat. If you take the best of the three indicators, it's really flat. Now, is that a soft landing? No, because most economists and the Fed are forecasting a recession here in the first half of this year. So it's getting weaker. Yeah, a soft landing would be, oh, a GDP about 2%. That would be a soft landing. But we're seeing you're going to see a GDP of barely 1% here in the fourth quarter and then going negative in the first half of this year. Is that a soft landing? Stagnation or contraction, is that soft? No, I don't think that's too soft. Right? And what about prices and inflation? Well, as we said, you know, Consumer CPI is not coming down anymore, folks. It's creeping back up. You know, I was just reading the Wall Street Journal here this morning, and here's another category of inflation that's going up, you know. Prescription drug prices. These damn pharma companies are gouging the hell out of us. 
Well, I mean, it's really disgusting. Why are they running up their prices here? Well, because the government is about to implement some new rules that prevent them from jacking up their prices on their best-selling drugs, right? Asthma drugs, shingle drugs, osteoporosis drugs, right? Drugs for blood clots, the new cancer drugs, uh, heart drugs. You know, these are the ones that they're they're jacking up to double-digit, double-digit increases in prescription drugs. And that's only the first step, you see, because the drug companies raise their prices. And then there's middlemen who sell the drugs of the drug companies to the pharmacies. And then there's the pharmacies. And all along this chain, you know, if the base of the chain here, the pharma companies raise their prices, well, then the other guys are going to raise their prices too and pass it on. And that's what's going. So by the time you get it from your your pharmacy, it's even higher than the 10% or whatever that the drug companies raised. And, you know, it, it's really, these key drugs that I mentioned, it's, it's really a shame because we're, we're paying through the nose for this stuff. That just across the border, you get a lot cheaper in Canada. The same drugs from the same company. You know, the latest uh, thing is uh, this uh, this drug that's supposed to be uh, Cotalzepic, that's supposed to be uh, a, a real um, diet kind of a thing. You know, it's the favorite drug of Hollywood celebrities. They buy it just to diet. It's supposed to be for uh, diabetes, uh, but it reduces uh, your, you know, your caloric in- intake and your, you know, appetite and so forth and that's how they keep their their weight down. Well, it's more and more demand for it for weight control than uh, for diabetes. Uh, and what's that drug selling for? A thousand dollars a month. Ozempic, a thousand dollars a month for thirty pills. Right. Now, the drug companies say, oh, you know, we're only raising our prices here by 5% in January or something like that, right? 5 or 10%. <clears throat> well, how did they come up with that? Well, they have so many different kinds of drugs, you know, that are still on their list that's not selling at all, maybe, you know, hundreds of them. And they take the 20, 100% increase for the drugs that are selling and they divide it by all those the denominator of the other drugs that aren't selling, and they say, oh, it's only 10%. Yeah. That's how you get the number down. You divide it by a large number here, and that that gives you an average increase that's uh, much lower than the actual increase for those particular drugs. I mean, it's typical. Typical now to to spend uh, $1,000 a month for some of these drugs. Oh, what the drug companies say. Oh, there's discounts. Oh, discounts. Yeah, if you're you're in a poverty category, poverty income category, they'll give you a discount. But if you're average working class, middle class folks, you know, you don't get the discount. 
and uh, the pharmacies uh, jacked the price up. Here, I had a personal experience with this, you know. My doctor prescribed the new drug for me at the end of last year, and they wanted $600 a month, $600 a month for 30 pills. I think it was $1,600 for, you know, three months, $1,600. My doctor said, hey, you know, you don't have to pay that. Here's a number. Call this number Canada Pharmacy, right? So I called the number and uh, voila, you betcha, you know, $200. $200 instead of $550 a month. And all these drugs are roughly between $500 and $1,000 a month. You know, even cancer-saving drugs, they're, well, they're really jacking the price up on those. So, you know, now we got the drug prices. Here's the price, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this Wall Street Journal article, right? Uh, by the way, uh, here's another way that they... They, the drug companies, get their, quote, average down when they report it to the Wall Street Journal. Drugs that aren't selling, they're outmoded. You know, better drugs come along and these other drugs are, are not selling anymore. They lower the list prices of these other drugs. And that lowers the average price for all their drugs. They're not selling those. People aren't buying those but it pulls down that average price and you list them say, oh, it's only 5% raising them or 10% at the most. But here's a drug for cystic fibrosis called Trikafta, right? From Vertex Pharmaceuticals said, oh, we only raised our prices 5.9%. Well, you know how much you pay for a 28 day supply? $26,546 for less than one month. $26,000. Wow. Well, my point is, you know, add, add prescription drugs, folks, because they jacked the price up at the beginning of the year because they know there's government negotiations going on. And they may have to pay more or, or pay, le pay less. But what good is it the government going after the drug companies if they don't go after the middleman and the pharmacies? You know, it's, it's like oil prices, right? You got the price of crude oil that comes out of a well in Saudi Arabia. And then you tack on the price of the tanker to ship it. And then it comes to the U.S., and then it's got to be refined, so you tack on the price of, you know, you mark up the refining cost with a profit margin on top of that for refining the oil. And then it has to be transported on trucks, right, transport local trucks, tanker trucks, to the gas station. And there's another markup. And then it gets to the gas station, there's another markup, a whole chain of markups. Well, you got the same thing with the drug companies. You got a chain effect. And when the guy at the bottom of the chain jacks his price up, the other guys like it because they say, oh, wow, we can pass on that cost and throw in our own markup. And so it goes. Big problems here. 
with inflation and how it's calculated. But keep in mind, bottom line, the point I'm making is that GDP, whether the economy is growing or not, the main determinant of it is what is your inflation assumption? And if it's CPI, we got no growth. No growth last year, right? If it's CPI, if, it, if it's PCE at three, you know, you got about a 1% growth last year in GDP. And if it's GDP, of course, you get a 2% growth. Okay. But even the CPI at 4%, 5% services is an underestimation. Underestimation. Why? Well, I went through some of the reasons last week here. Uh, let me just summarize them. Why the CPI is not 4%, I think it's about 6%. All goods and services, about 6%, not 4%. Official numbers, 4%, all items, right? Goods, flat. Virtually no increase in goods prices, but services, 5 to 6%, chronically. All right, that's how you get that 4%. Between 4 and 5%, CP, CPI, latest. Okay, but that's really, I think, an underestimate because it's closer to 6%. Why? Because of some of the ways they calculate some of these important categories that make up the 450 or so most purchased items by households. As I said, there's no actual housing price increase in it. Mm -mm. No, they don't go around and say, you know, real estate, realtors, how much do the prices, you know, and so forth. No, they estimate those prices from the rents, which include owner equivalent rent. In other words, what households pay themselves with rent. And the rents are only really new leases, not all the increases that are already baked in to a contract. Then there's hedonic pricing, as it's called, where they adjust, actually lower the price in their calculation for a product, a good always, uh, because they assume there's quality increases. You know, Samsung and, I, and you know, Apple raised the price of their iPhones, but the, what the number they, they, the Labor Department plugs into the CPI is that an actual price cut. Not $100 more, it's $100 less than the list price that you actually bought it for. Why? Because they assume quality improvement. You know, the camera has got, uh, you know, three lenses instead of two lenses. Therefore, it's better. And therefore, you know, the quality improvement, let's reduce it. Well, there's a lot of that going on, hedonic pricing, right? By the way, uh, they lower the prices they lower prices for assumptions of quality improvement, you know. But what about those products that the quality is declining? Do they raise the prices for those? No, they just lower the prices for quality improvements. They don't raise prices for quality decline. And by the way, it's kind of all arbitrary. 
in many cases, what a quality improvement is. You know, some bureaucrat in the Labor Department makes the decision. COVID upset a lot of the assumptions in our statistics, price statistics and employment and GDP statistics, right? Uh, all these goods, 450 goods, uh, you know, have weights to them. You know, we, we spend more for food and transport and so forth, lodging. <clears throat> Therefore, when the Labor Department calculates CPI, it gives a, a bigger weight to those categories. Well, those categories have uh, been jumbled, I think, and the weights need to be changed, but the weights are still old weights, right? Then there's the problem of base years. You know, if you want to you, you, you want to get a CPI, you got to compare apples to apples, and all these goods and services should use the same base year, but they don't. There's different base years. You know, I can pick a base year where the economy was good and prices were high, and therefore my CPI is going, going to be lower for product X than if I picked a base year when we had deflation and prices were lower, well, now it's going to be higher. You see, so the base year is an important factor in determining rates. By the way, there's no, in the CPI, there's no category for uh, interest charges, right? You're paying more uh, interest on your, your variable rate mortgage or on your credit card and whatever, you know. It's gone up uh, maybe, well, it's gone up a lot. It's doubled, right? Well, there's no that's not included in CPI. Well, you're paying more on interest, but that's not included in CPI. Well, what is an interest? It's just the price of money. It's a price. It's the price of money. It should be included in CPI because it's really whacking budgets, isn't it? Yeah, but it's not. What about insurances? Well, you know, certain insurances, government doesn't go to insurance companies and say, how much you raise your prices? No. They say, well, what's your retained earnings? Oh, and uh, the government estimates the price from the company's retained earnings. Wow, right? And then we got price reporting uh, for items that are called intellectual property, which are just totally arbitrary. Okay. Uh, You add all this up. You add all this, all, all these questionable assumptions and methodologies, and I just touched the surface on all this stuff, right? And you know, seasonality adjustments, which are you know upset here as well by changes in the last four or five years. And what do you get? You get even a lowballed CPI. And remember, CPI is is the highest of the three indexes. So if you really did not have all these questionable assumptions and methods, you just took the actual increase, you would get a CPI that's higher than its current 4%, all items. You'd get close to 6%. Now think about that. If CPI was 6% and you're using the GDP deflator, which gives you a GDP of... 2%, you know, which, which it looks like it's going to be roughly that for all of last year. 
23, real GDP. When these numbers come out soon, you know, preliminary uh, first pass GDP numbers for all of for fourth quarter and all of 23, you know, it's going to come out soon. Uh, what you're going to get, you know, is about 2% or so <clears throat> GDP because that 4.9% in the third quarter is dropping below 2% here in the fourth quarter. And the first half of the year was about 2%. So you're going to be back down to 2, 2.4, 2.3, whatever. Now, if you used CPI, there would be no 2% because CPI is twice that a GDP deflator, even as it exists now. But if you had a real more accurate CPI at 5 to 6%, then you would be negative negative growth for all of 2023. You would be in recession. Yeah. Uh, is that soft landing? Already in recession for last year? And now the estimate for GDP, using this really low-ball GDP deflator for the first half of this year is going to be a contraction. So if you use CPI and correct CPI, it would be, you know, even a bigger contraction coming this year. There's another problem with GDP here. Back in 2013, they redefined it. Yeah, they added additional growth in investment by adding new categories to investment for intellectual property. New categories. Yeah, that they never had before. Now, is that legitimate? Well, I don't know how legitimate it is to assume you got investment growth from intellectual property because the value of a company's logo or trademark has increased. How do you know what the value of a trademark is, right? In dollar terms, in the year, and how much it changed from one year to, to the next, you know? How much is how much is Nike's sign, you know, that trademark, that logo, how much has that increased in value one year to the next? It's, it's a total guesstimate. That's all. It's a guesstimate. Oh, but that's a big growing area. You know, how much did that re redefinition in 2013 of GDP, how much did that, make, that, that produce? $500 billion more added to the business investment category. $500 billion more growth, right, in GDP. And then they, you know, corrected going back <laughs> as well. Going back and going forward, 500 billion. That was a, you know, a long time ago. It's at least that. Look at that category. You know, business investment. You know, when you look at business investment, the, the subcategories in GDP, business investment, are, are structures, business structures. You know, commercial real estate, residential. <clears throat> well, residential is not. Uh, you know, what is that? That, that should be consumer, not investment. Well, anyway, okay. They got structures and they got plant and equipment, you know, machinery and so forth, you know, airplanes, Boeing, whose production is collapsing. 
an Airbus. Its competitors are scooping up because Air Boeing can't make commercial planes anymore that don't have big problems. Okay, that's an aside. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, IP, intellectual property, software, intellectual property, plant and equipment, physical stuff, and structures. Those are the categories of business investment. And if you look at business investment, they're down. All the categories are down except intellectual property. Business investment is contracting. And it would really be a worse number if it wasn't for IPO, the values of which are just total arbitrary. Oh, but they boost the GDP. So you got to factor that in. You know, if you back out those changes in definition of GDP a decade ago, <clears throat> our GDP, all other things equal, would be much less than it is. Right. And then if you really calculated the prices accurately, you know, 2023 at the official 2% growth would be negative. Soft landing? Oh, it all depends, you know, what statistic you're using and how accurate it is. Okay. Well, as soon as it comes out, we're going to do a show here on preliminary GDP for fourth quarter and for the year. Uh, and forecasts going forward, you know, uh, are pretty low for 2024, which is usually a, a banner year because of an election, right? The St. Louis Fed uh, is forecasting, uh, what, 1.25% growth this year, which means a recession first half and uh, recovery second half, right? Uh, the Atlanta Federal Reserve District has a, a model called GDP Now, GDP Now, in which is they, they totally estimate, not based on, you know, the way GDP is calculated, but they estimate <clears throat> going forward. And Philadelphia Federal Reserve uh, has a survey of 34 professional economists. And what do they see? Well, they see 1.3% for this year. Recession first half, right? I mean, what's the soft landing? Is it no growth? Is it, uh, oh, only 1% contraction in the first half? At what point does soft become hard? You know, at what point, if prices are at 5%, you know, creeping up now, 5%, is that soft? We've gone from 9% at the peak in 2022 or 21, 22, I think it was, summer, uh, to 5%. Whoa. That's like a 40% reduction in inflation, chronically stuck. Chronic, you know, you, the Biden administration talks about, they just can't understand why, you know, the people in this country uh, don't understand that and we've tamed inflation. We've tamed it. Well, all millions of people can't be stupid. You know, there's more truth in the collective mass number than there is in, in a smaller number. Well, people know, you know, even using CPI, inflation under, under Biden, you know, is up 
Now, that's what people think. People don't think, wow, the last six months, gee, I feel better. No, they're thinking about, hell, four years ago, you know, I was paying half of what I'm paying now for this service or this particular good or 20% or whatever. Yeah, it's up 20%. Minimum, minimum 20%. That's CPI with all these calculation problems, 20%. They haven't forgotten it. You know? And oh, you know, they say, Biden says, you know, unemployment is only 3.9%. Yeah, I mean, if you were full-time unemployed, not one of the 50 million people who are part-time temp gig workers in this country, yeah. If you're one of full-timers and you got unemployed and you looked for work in the last four weeks, then uh, yeah, it's only 3.9%. If you add the other categories, you get about six, 7% unemployment. And by the way, that's in the government statistics, too. They just don't get reported. You know, it's called the U-6 unemployment rate, not the full-time only, which is the U-3 unemployment rate. By the way, in these, these surveys of the government unemployment, unemployment, you know, uh, the survey called the uh, Current Establishment Survey, they Labor Department just asks these big big companies, larger companies, you know, when, what's your hiring, you know, what's your wages and so forth. Uh, well, I've seen I've seen data that said only a third of those companies are actually reporting now. The reporting has dropped off tremendously. So instead of you know, four hundred thousand the largest companies providing data to the government, it just maybe one hundred fifty. That's got to affect affect the numbers to some extent. That drop off in the participation. Anyway, these are uh, these are all problems. I'm going to conclude the show talking about my next book coming out a little bit. Okay, later in this year. Uh, that's called America: Empire in Decline. People are talking about that a lot, justifiably. <clears throat> What's covered in this book? Well, you know, I look at theories of imperialism to start, both Marxist and pre-Marxist, and argue, <clears throat> the theme they're arguing is that, uh, well, you know, who, who who's reviewed here? You know, uh, <clears throat> Marx, of course, Hilferding, Lenin, Luxembourg, dependency theorists, Wallerstein, contemporary neo-Marxists, Sweezy, Foster, Smith, Hudson, Harvey, Right. Look at all their their theories, their views on imperialism, and look at some actual examples. You know, Roman imperialism and and British imperialism, colonialism, Spain, whatever. <clears throat> That's the first chapter. And uh, you know, my theme is that these views are um, deficient. These theories are deficient including, you know, Lenin and others. They're deficient. Why? Because they don't really take into account financial imperialism. Capitalism has changed dramatically in the last 40, 50 years. It's become financialized and globalized and globally financialized, right? And the way that people in other countries and workers get exploited has changed. There's financial exploitation more going on. 
That doesn't mean that traditional exploitation, colonialism, whatever, uh, has ended. It's just that we have another layer of imperialism now that the capitalist states are involved in with the big corporations and big banks to extract value and surplus wealth from other countries. So American imperialism is different. You know, it's the same, but it's different. It's more efficient. It's more exploitive because of its financialized character than prior theories, <clears throat> which relied mostly on goods, you know, goods explo ex exploitation or unequal exchange and whatever. <clears throat> All right. Uh, and then I look at the, the nature of American imperialism, back looking at its whole history from the start of the country, you know, and uh, roughly starting in 1768, you know, right after the French and Indian War, uh, up until 1897, which was a, a land grab, North American land grabbing imperialism, right? The old classical grab the land, right? I mean, the U.S. is based upon land grabbing. It is the white colonial European settler <laughs> form of imperialism and land grabbing par excellence the most successful version of that. I mean, what's going on, uh, you know, in the Middle East with Israel grabbing the land is uh, mice nuts compared to what the U.S. did. Uh, very similar, but not mice nuts. I mean, what's, what's Netanyahu doing, right? He says, from the river to the sea, we're going to use this war and opportunity to drive the Palestinians out of the West Bank, those that are left, and that's going on, and uh, we're going to level Gaza, and yeah, we're going to try to get Hamas, but our real goal is to drive the Palestinians out of Gaza, force them to go to other countries. And then we're going to level it, well, they're already leveling it, I mean, they're even, they're even uh, plowing up cemeteries, the Israelis in Gaza, uh, we're going to level it, and we're going to redevelop it yeah, by Israeli businessmen for Israelis. You know, that, that's what's going on. Land grabbing. Zionism is a land grabbing, uh, imperialist, proto-fascist ideology. Zionism, yeah. They should change the name from Israel to Zion, you know, because that's what it really is now. <clears throat> But the point is, uh, you know, U.S. makes uh, here in the 18th, 19th century is really land grabbing. And uh, that's what's covered in, in this new book uh, a lot, how the U.S. Uh, uh, drove the Native Americans first off the coast and drove them, uh, you know, into the Ohio Valley and, and, you know, into the lower lower south, drove them off of the, um, the coast and the Piedmont and whatever. <clears throat> wiped them out in, in many cases. But a lot of these tribes, you know, what was left of them just moved west. You know, after 1768, you know, Delaware, Lenapes, Mohegans, and Powhatatomi, you know, all of them were, <clears throat> were driven over the Alleghenies into the Ohio Valley. And then they were driven from the... I mean, the Delaware Indians, for example, were fighting fighting the Dutch from the 
30s and 40s and beating the hell out of the Dutch in New York and New Jersey. Right? But they eventually got overwhelmed, you know, forced down into uh, uh, southern New Jersey, Delaware River area, and then driven from Delaware to uh, uh, off that land <clears throat> to western Pennsylvania, uh, driven into the Ohio Valley, and uh, they ended up in Kansas and Oklahoma. Yeah, driven off the land, because it was always grabbing the land, settlers. I mean, from the very beginning, George Washington was a big land speculator. George Washington used the French and Indian War while he was working for the British, you know, to go into the Ohio Valley and stake out the best land. And that's what happened. You know, you, you have this, uh, th this story of, oh, the pioneers, you know, they just moved over the mountains and west and started uh, homesteading and so no 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 the speculators and land surveyors went first and then they sold that land you know, it wasn't just squatters that moved west and they squatted on the land no they bought the land they bought some land that was already owned by speculators investors and that's the whole story anyway that's the uh, a second chapter. Then I look at the institutional bases of uh, U.S. hegemony, global and its empire, you know, and Bretton Woods, 1944, creation of IMF, World Bank, GATT, the dollar system, then the swift international payment system, right, and the twin deficits in dollar recycling and the euro dollar market, right, and U.S. FDI, foreign direct investment, free trade agreements, you know, WTO, foreign aid, and of course now increasing use of sanctions, which have been growing ever since Cuba against Russia and China. <clears throat> uh, and then I look at the uh, another chapter on the last quarter century of economic malperformance of the U.S. economy from 2001 until now. Uh, then I spend a significant amount of time looking at the contradictions and limits of U.S. fiscal policy in the 21st century and the contradictions and limits of U.S. monetary policy in the 21st century. Uh, really what I'm doing is, is looking at the material bases for U.S. imperialism, you know, which is oftentimes economic. Right? Uh, and then uh, conclude, conclude it with a look at the decline of U.S. economic hegemony, what's going on in recent years that shows the control of the global economy by the U.S. is weakening, and then indicators of global political decline in the U.S. and U.S. domestic political decline. In other words, not just economic. Material causes are not economic determinism. Material causes can include political forces and factors. It even can include ideas. Once they are used, you know, by the ruling elite to expand or maintain control of their empire, they that become ideas become a material force. Well, what kind of ideas are we talking about? Well, we, we had this, this whole idea of human rights, you know, Carter created that. I mean, that was just to justify expansion. 
and uh, you know to browbeat competitors, would be competitors. Uh, American exceptionalism, that's an idea. Terrorism is an idea. Axes of evil, and now rules-based international order. These are all ideology of empire, and they become material forces too, just as politically, you know, are material forces, and economics, you know, the growing contradictions in fiscal monetary policy are material forces. And the book will conclude with uh, talking about wars, sanctions, the rise of the BRICS, and the bifurcating U.S. economic and political empire. I believe that the empire is in retreat, and the U.S. is circling the wagons of its G7 and you know Australia, New Zealand, South Korea uh, allies <clears throat> is pulling back. Right? I mean, it looks like the U.S. is uh, aggressive, and it is in some sense under neocons. You know, wars, wars, wars. Right? But you got to understand that these wars are a reaction to the fact that they cannot control their empire anymore with soft power. They can't control it with ideas. They can't control it with indirect political threats and force. Those days are gone. So they're reacting you know, with force, the last uh, recourse to control the empire. That's what's going on. And we're going to see you know, uh, an acceleration of the declining empire because its international economic power is uh, under great threat. You know, uh, the de-dollarization, the decline of the role of the U.S. dollar and all the institutions built around it since 1944 is underway, and that's where it's going. Okay, well, we'll talk about that a little more. And... We'll look forward to the real GDP numbers coming out, and we'll dissect that when it does. Okay, I'm out of here. Now, boy.